0: Welcome back, dear listeners, to the Dish with Dina podcast. I am so happy to have you join us again today. This week's guest is Kaylee Clay. Kaylee and I dish about navigating the challenging worlds of living with an autoimmune disorder, food sensitivities, and ultra-processed foods. Kaylee is a registered dietitian, nutritionist, autoimmune coach, and soon-to-be published author who spends her spare time hiking, gardening, and biking. So sit back, Enjoy the conversation, and let's dish. Welcome, Kaylee Clay, to the Dish with Dina podcast. Thank you so much for taking time out to chat with me today. The pleasure is mine. Thanks for having me, Dina. I... Shared with you already that I am very excited about interviewing you because we don't go that far back, but you were definitely one of the first people I met when I switched careers and I became a dietitian. You were probably one of the first dietitians that I met. And I want to know if you remember that whole backstory that you and I have. Do you remember how we came across each other?
1: Well, I remember I interned for you for a little bit. And so I think you must have posted something on one of the like dietitian job boards or something like that, that I think I responded to. Does that sound right?
0: It does sound right. That was about three years ago. I was like fresh out of the oven. I think I was fresh out of the oven. And I was looking to collaborate with people to do volunteering, to do interning, and um, also do like blog posting as well. And I know that you definitely wrote one of my favorite blogs of all time because it was about farmer's markets, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Yeah. And so I'm so excited to, you know, how far you've come in this time and to share your story and also for you to share your story with the listeners and whoever else is out there in the world listening to this that you um, you know, might have a message for them because that's really the crux of what I'm doing here is to make sure that I just convey the guest's message and mission and experience to whomever you think, you know, might benefit from this information. So going back a little bit further, do you mind sharing with us some of your earliest food memories and it could be family stuff or, you know, what a cultural background you grew up in or wherever, whatever takes you back that far. Share us a little bit about like how you
1: grew up about around food. Absolutely. Um, So food was not You know, it really wasn't something that was valued as terribly important in my uh, in my childhood home. Um, And actually, my first food memories kind of don't center around food at all. Um, But yeah, my first food memory ever revolves around my brother. He was um, fresh from the hospital. We had like just brought him home and I was four years old at the time. And my dad was feeding him with a bottle and I, you know, asked my dad if I could help or it was probably more annoying than that or something. And my dad shooed me away. And immediately I just like blamed my brother for my dad, uh, being mad at me. Uh, so that so was kind of my first food memory. Uh, a couple weeks after that, it was Christmas, uh, it was Christmas dinner and we, uh, had a a dog. We had a Springer Spaniel. He was in the cage. And we found out that night that there's this thing called Springer Rage where the dog can literally just kind of like acting really aggressive and like kind of nuts. Um, And so that Christmas, I remember dinner that year because the dog just like all of a sudden went bananas in its cage. So (laughs) my earliest memories are about my brother. They're about my dog. They're not really about food at all it was all the interruptions of food things having.
0: Oh my gosh. You know, it's funny that you're talking about your baby brother because I also, I have a younger brother as well. He's five years younger than I am. And I yeah. was, I was very adamantly opposed to having a baby brother. I, <laughs> I specifically asked for a sister and um, hopefully at some point, my brother, my brother will also be a guest on this program and
1: he'll tell his he'll yeah. story.
0: Is it fair to assume you had to get rid of the dog?
1: Yeah, it's very sadly, my parents decided to put him down. Uh, but yeah, it was it was it was terrifying. That is um,
0: unfortunate. And especially at four yeah. years old to have to be put in that situation of, you know, oh, my gosh, not only is there a baby there, but now the dog is yeah. born, everybody's frightened. And it's Christmas. And yeah. oh, my gosh, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so tell us a little bit then about maybe how some other food behaviors or things that you might remember around different meals that you planned or things that you started learning how to cook and when that started to happen in maybe some of your earlier years um, without going back that far that's the case.
1: Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah. Um, so I feel like yeah, I, I ended up being a dietitian through like the back door or something yeah. like that. My um, childhood household was um, there, you know, my parents both worked Uh, full-time jobs and neither really cared for cooking. And so we really depended on like, you know, kind of highly processed, packaged, uh, ready to eat foods. Um, So it was a lot of like ramen noodles and bagel bites and frozen chicken wings and cereal and uh, mac and cheese and, and stuff like that. And when grandma would come around, we'd get even more fun stuff like uh, cinnamon toast with I can't believe it's not butter Um, (laughs) and she would give me ice cream and tell me that it was healthy that had calcium in it Um, and then by the time I hit like middle school high school I depended on school for lunch and that was some of the worst food I have ever eaten in my entire life it was really really disgusting disgusting Mm. food really not fit for human consumption um, and that was when things really started to kind of, when things started to crack at the seams, so to speak. I, by the time I was a teenager, I had chronic headaches. I had chronic stomach aches. I never wanted to eat. Um, you know, the food at home was mediocre. The food at school is absolutely disgusting. Like the greasiest pizza you can ever imagine, like cardboard hamburgers, the stalest French fries in the world. So at school, I just kind of for several years, I would just get either a pink frosted cookie or a Snickers ice cream bar. And I ate that every single day at school for lunch for years. Um, Right. So I was I was starting to get really sick by the time I was like, I don't know, 15, 16, 17. Mm. I was unwell. Um, So, yeah, thankfully, at the time, my ex-boyfriend, his mother um, kind of like intervened and told me, you know, like it's the food that you're eating that's making you not feel well because I thought it was just eating in general that made me mm-hmm. not feel well. And she was like, no, you have to eat better. And she was the first person who, you know, kind of introduced me to like vegetables that actually tasted good. She really, she was, she's an excellent home cook. So she um, was, you know, really my first introduction to good home cooking. Uh, so after I had this, you know, kind of, Uh, lucky uh, introduction to home cooking and better food from my ex-boyfriend's mother. Um, then after that, I, you know, kind of really realized, I was like, wow, I really need to be eating at least more vegetables. And, um, I kind of started learning how to teach myself how to cook, which at first was, uh, sort of disastrous, but definitely got better pretty quickly. Um, and then after that, I became vegetarian and started reading food labels and got more and more and more interested and involved in the world of food and nutrition. And, uh, now I'm a dietitian. And that's
0: what led you here. You know, I wrote a couple of notes as you were speaking because um speaking of labeling, one of the things that kind of caught my ear when you were talking about ice cream and how it was a good source of calcium, or at least that's how it was being spun to you. <laughs> you know, I often tell people with labeling, just be conscientious because the front of the packaging is almost always as I consider quote unquote fiction within reason. I mean, you know, we do have the the regulated stamps that tell you whether or not it's kosher or gluten free or organic. Um, and then the back is what I call facts. And these are where you can find the scientific information and all the ingredients. And so the reason why I bring this up is because I do see a lot of times the food Uh, manufacturers kind of marketing to people who are maybe a little bit opposed or don't know much about nutrition. And it'll say, you know, this is a day's worth of vegetables for you, but it's inside, you know, like Rice Krispies or like some sort of sugary cereal product where it's like, well, I... Yes, that's how they're spinning it. It's a good source of calcium, but not really in that way because there's so many other things that can um, kind of like act against that in the way. So if there is a lot of processing going on behind the scenes, if there's a lot of sugary things, then I'm not treating it as a healthful, nutritious food item. I'm treating it as dessert and like, just, let's just call it dessert.
1: I completely agree with you.
0: And so did you end up with that small shift in coming from, I think you had actually called this too and a lot of people do know the term in our profession the, the sad diet the sad right the sad diet exactly which is standing for the standard American diet where it is a little bit more highly processed fast foods non uh, not as highly nutritious or maybe not as um, whole foods a lot of you know things that are somewhat processed in that way not that processed foods are bad in, in general there could be some good findings there um, but when there is a lot of high amounts of added sugar salt, fat, et cetera. Uh, with that small shift, did you see some changes take place immediately with your health? And if so, what were some of the things that you were starting to notice?
1: Yeah, that's a really good question. Um, so when I decided to become vegetarian, I then all of a sudden I had to read food labels mm-hmm. to make sure I, cause I was looking for, for meat or, you know, you know, animal products. Um, and then I started noticing this, like, a lot of the foods that I liked, maybe they were vegetarian, but maybe they also had this long laundry list in the ingredients list of just strange chemicals, like all these chemical names. I had no idea what I was eating. I had no idea what they were. And so kind of my shift to like vegetarianism, sort of like you mentioned, was also a shift towards more like a whole foods diet. Those happened at the same time for mm-hmm. me. Um, and like in really quickly, my headaches disappeared. And, um, it got to a point where, you know, nowadays, if I have a stomach ache, I probably know why I have the stomach ache.
0: Right. So trial um, and error in that case, like you were becoming your own experiment
1: in a way of
0: what's working, what's not working for you.
1: Yeah. Yeah, Yeah. absolutely. Um, so I was kind of, it's been this funny trajectory because obviously when I was a teenager, you know, my health was, was not good. And, um, you know, I, we sort of spoke about this a little bit earlier. Um, I'm starting to realize now that, like the definition that at least us dietitians use for anorexia, which is just not eating enough food, not necessarily a psychological component. Right. Um, like cancer patients can have anorexia. Right. That experience, you know, you know, I went through anorexia, and it's been so like uncomfortable to admit that to myself. Mm-hmm. Um, so my health was poor, obviously, during that time. Improved once I started eating health more healthy. But I think there were lasting impacts of the period when I was anorexic because I then later developed an autoimmune disease, psoriasis, and, that, and there is research. Oh, go ahead.
0: Yeah, no, I was going to say, and that's exactly where like your formative years were thinking, you know, your hormones are going and all, you know, you need to kind of um, be in that equilibrium state because you are growing and things are changing and um, the, that particular I guess it's like, you know, whatever, adolescence and puberty-esque type of periods there where um, things can potentially set you off in that direction that, oh, gosh, now is whatever damage, can that be undone? And I don't really mean to use it in the word of like damaging, but it's possible. So an autoimmune disease, yeah. for sure, that's the that's the issue. And so then did you end up getting diagnosed with that pretty soon after? Or did you have some complications that you were just curious about? And how quickly was that diagnosed?
1: It was uh, quite slow, honestly. Mm -hmm. Like, you know, so if I was 15, 16, 17 when I was experiencing anorexia. I wasn't diagnosed. I I didn't really develop psoriasis until, I think, yeah, it was 2014 is when it really started getting bad. So I was 23 in 2014. So, Mm -hmm. you know, that was a full, I don't know, let's just say seven, eight years after anorexia that I started. But I had a bunch of other risk factors going on too that also uh, contributed to developing an autoimmune disease. But I still really believe that experiencing anorexia Mm -hmm. when I was younger did also contribute to the development of my psoriasis.
0: Mm -hmm. And I wanted to point out too. So for listeners who may or may not be aware, these these terms that we're using. So like Kaylee said, the word anorexia is technically like loss of appetite, re- restriction of calories. Now, the component of anorexia nervosa, that's more of a mental diagnosis where somebody is knowingly um, denying themselves of food because that could also be uh, placed on be a body dysmorphia and body image and diet culture and all of these lovely things that we tend to go through in our early years, unfortunately. But in your case, it was because you weren't necessarily aware of what was quote-unquote good and bad foods for yourself or you were not nourishing yourself in that way. You didn't necessarily do it on purpose, but you were being malnourished. Right. And that's Death. something too that you know we talk a lot about these days. We have all these discussions about body sizes and so on, but we really don't really talk about malnutrition in its true form of what our bodies are being denied of in preparing ourselves to go through different life cycle stages and the things that we learn at a younger age or don't know at a younger age and how that affects us as we're growing. And for you in particular, the thing that I think I'm really curious about is that because of, unfortunately, your own health journey, you... Have delved into one of the two most complicated things I think when it comes to health conditions, which is skin skin issues skin diseases, mm-hmm. and the other thing is gut and as you know, we speak about this a lot too in our profession you know gut and brain health and all of these things are somewhat interrelated um, but it takes a lot, and I don't think we find at least in the current textbooks that we learned in school just a handful of years ago, it was hard to kind of um, manage those conditions with food. It was almost always like topical treatments or um, something a little bit, maybe trial and error again, that was felt very frustrating. And of course, you know, who has time to do that, but then you don't want to be uncomfortable all the time or be in this inflamed condition. Uh, So you have quite a lot of stories to tell in this case too, leading up to, you know, currently too. Do you mind walking us through that journey for yourself of how that went for you yeah. starting to discover that?
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I can definitely, um, you know, when I was a teenager, I had um, moderately severe acne and tried every, you know. Everything under the sun. I tried over the counter stuff for my acne and tried stuff from the dermatologist for my acne. Nothing seemed to help until I started playing with my diet and eating better. Um, and that's still the case to today. If I eat, you know, I know for myself, if I eat a lot of sugar, I will probably get some acne. And, and, you know, that's that's just the way that it is for my body. And, yeah, what I put on my skin, what I don't put on my skin doesn't right. really seem to, uh, you know, influence it. And then same with psoriasis. There is so much um, emphasis on the skin when it comes to psoriasis. Psoriasis is kind of a flaky, if you're not familiar, psoriasis is like a, a flaky, scaly Mm-hmm. thick skin that forms like in patches over your body and it, it cracks and bleeds and it's painful and it's dry and it sucks <laughs> and um <laughs> You know, so I I went to, I knew I had psoriasis for a few years. Um, I mentioned 2014, it got really bad. And I think it wasn't until 2016 that I was like, all right, let me just go to a dermatologist and get a diagnosis for something that I already know. So I go to the dermatologist and I picked this person specifically because they um, did research in psoriasis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So yeah, I felt so excited to meet with them and I meet with them and I've never had, thank, thank the Lord, I've never had severe psoriasis. I've always had you know kind of mild to moderate psoriasis and so the dermatologist says oh you know would you like me to prescribe you some topical steroids which i declined and she asked me why i would decline the prescription and i told her it's just not the root cause i'm really interested in why this is happening to me not just masking it with steroids um, you know which and i've seen now unfortunately a lot of folks Who have psoriasis that go on steroids, Um, it can mask the psoriasis for a while and then either just kind of stops working and people just like explode in psoriasis or once Mm. they try to get off the steroids, then again, they like explode in psoriasis. Um, So it's really not a great, um, it's definitely not, you know, a remedy. It's just a band-aid. And so I think it's really time that we as, you know, a Western medical community begin to delve deeper into what is really causing these issues and how can we really help our patients instead of just sending them home with little band-aids and cover-ups and things that will only last a little while.
0: Right. And I think that speaks to, you know, we're not necessarily opposed to conventional medicine, obviously, if there's going to be something that works. But it's also helpful that we either experiment with some of these things in conjunction with or that we advocate for either side of the profession or the patient of exploring a little bit more about that, because with medicine also comes side effects. And like you said, too, it can quell the symptoms significantly or so much so that you don't realize what is the root cause of something else going on underneath it that is also getting exacerbated while the outward you is not necessarily showing that. And so that's really kind of neat, too, because I think I've had discussions, too, with dietitians and non-dietitians, but people who do follow more of like the functional integrative approach, people who are following more of the, and I think you and I spoke about this as well, like the um, health at every size approach, the intuitive eating approach. Like we are trying to venture out from just that clinical focus of what we learn in school so much of, you know, calculating calories and there's a formula to everything and macronutrients, et cetera. And coming up also in this, you know, futuristic, technologically advanced world that I look at with nutrigenomics and being able to kind of delve deeper and have more of a personalized or individualized approach. So like you were saying, it might not be the cure-all end-all for every single person who has skin issues, but this is what worked for you. This is the research that you've done. And you're able to share that now uh, because do you want to share with our, with our listeners, the, the lovely thing that you've been working on for quite some time?
1: So, yeah, I'm so excited to share. I have been working on a book uh, specifically about psoriasis. Um, so the title of the book is Gain Control Over Your Psoriasis Naturally. Um, so, yeah, I'm very excited to share that for the first time in six and a half years, my psoriasis has gone completely in remission, mm. which has been just so very, very exciting. Um, I'm, I'm so thrilled, and, um, and it's all just been from um, – from diet changes and lifestyle changes, um, some herbs and supplements. And then um, I also discovered that I had a a fungal overgrowth in my intestines as well. I had candida too. So treating that kind of low grade chronic infection also really helps um, my psoriasis. So all of that is in my book and I break it down into kind of five sections that, you know, you can walk yourself through. You know, to at least reduce your psoriasis. Um, But I'm obviously hoping that I can get more and more folks to be in remission with me. That is definitely my goal. Um,
0: I want I want to dive deeper about that too because you know the fact that however many years this spanned of you even knowing what the condition was and then for you to actually lead yourself into remission and I know I've been following you on social media for since I've known you and you actually are very transparent and you share a lot of your flare ups and things that are not going so great with you and some of the dietary modifications that you've been making and it even for you even as a dietitian even as you're doing these experiments it still took six something years for you to find. That uh, that area now that makes you feel a little bit uh, better, obviously, and and no more flare ups in that way. And so I think this is a really strong message too, that it can take an unfortunately long time for people to find something that does work for them, and for them not to maybe give up that maybe we haven't found the right remedies. We fa- haven't find found the right or maybe research hasn't occurred yet for us to, um, you know, see what might work or might not work. And that there are people who maybe aren't being officially clinically treated or trials being worked on these people. Um, and just as a side note, by the way, I am in New York city. You might hear a siren in the behind me, this is the <laughs> real life thing. So just forgive me. I'm not cutting this out. Cause we're on a roll. But, uh, the point being is that, you know, Herein lies the opportunity, I think, in our profession and and the kind of um, adjacent professions, too, where we're doing our own experiments on ourselves or we're doing, quote unquote, experiments with our own clients and patients and documenting those things and coming up with case studies. So in Writing your book, did you find research that either surprised you or that you felt validated in because you knew this was happening, but you maybe didn't see it in print or, you know, was there anything that you felt confident or not confident in what you were looking for?
1: Absolutely. The biggest thing um, that fits that bill circles back to eating disorders. And I have uh, I started working with people with eating disor- uh sc- excuse me, with autoimmune diseases such as psoriasis um, in my private practice, you know, seeing them individually one on one. And I kept seeing this theme crop up of people with um, autoimmune diseases. Uh, having at least disordered eating, if not eating disorders. Mm. And it was just this theme that kept kept showing. And so finally, I was like, is there research on this? I looked it up, lo and behold, there is research on it. Um, And so that's what was so incredibly mind blowing for me. And, you know, then to think back in my own history and realize that I did suffer from a period of anorexia of just, you know, not eating enough. Right. And now to have uh, in autoimmune disease blew my mind. And
0: again, like you said, it was kind of, oh my gosh, like that little light bulb must've gone off where now things start making sense. And if you knew what you knew now that you did back then could, you know, life have gone a little bit differently for you to be able to address that factor um, without yeah. realizing it.
1: Absolutely.
0: Um, I also wanted to talk to you a little bit about, uh, sensitivities, like things that people could potentially be aware and what to look for in that. So if anybody is listening to this who may or may not have known of any instance in their earlier years of malnutrition or disordered eating patterns, but is maybe dealing with, um, skin conditions. Are there, like you said, you gave a good example or definition or kind of, you know, you gave us some information about what to, what it is as far as psoriasis is concerned, but are there any things that maybe we don't realize like, Oh, I'm starting off a little scratchy thing here. And then it's blowing up into something else. Or do people have different ways that it flares up as far as, you know, different stages of psoriasis or different other uh, conditions that, you know, might be
1: correlated to that as well. I mean, yeah, absolutely. Just like you mentioned, for some people, they might get, yeah, like a little patch here and there. And that's honestly how it started for me. Like I would just, you know, get, oh, my skin's a little funny. Okay. Oh, now it's gone. Oh, well. Um, And so, yeah, it would kind of come and go. I have some family members who their uh, psoriasis seems to just sort of come and go. Um, And what for me happened was there was sort of like a straw that broke the camel's back. My psoriasis was coming and going. Um, but there was a lot of other risk factors that I was inadvertently exposing myself to, one of which is the pollution here mm-hmm. in New York City. Pollution is associated with increased risk of autoimmune diseases. Um, and I'm a, I'm a cyclist. I love to bike in the city. And unfortunately, cyclists just inhale tons of pollution. Um, so now I bike with an N95 mask. Um Stress. I was so stressed out when I was going to NYU for my undergrad and just kind of that like workaholic uh, mindset. And that absolutely contributed to uh, my psoriasis. I was eating way too much sugar. Unfortunately, Um, I wasn't eating regularly regularly because of my school schedule. And uh, there's something else I was going to add to it. Oh, and then what happened in 2014? I took some antibiotics, and that was the second round of antibiotics I'd taken in a few years. And what seems to be the case is it seemed to wipe out my good bacteria so much that fungi overgrew. And that's why I got this candida infection or candida overgrowth. Um, So there's definitely a whole lot of things going on uh, that contributed to all this.
0: Yeah. And I think that's a really good point to, to, to state as well, because again, with our profession, you know, people look at dietitians and think, okay, well that's food and nutrition and maybe we're in the medical, you know, crossover field, but there really are so many other factors, environmental stress, sleep. I joke sometimes that it feels like a flipping full-time job just to keep everything up and running, to maintain our health. And so Mm. for people who are perhaps a little bit more prone to something or having a particular disease disorder or condition, where it feels like you have to be on top of things that that one tiny slip up can put you in that whole flare up or that whole situation again, where is very uncomfortable, and it could last however long it lasts before you know, you kind of go in remission, or you uh, the, the symptoms are alleviated, that it really is placed on the patient or the client as well to kind of take ownership for that. Because as your dietitian, as your healthcare provider, we can only do so much with sharing guidance, excuse me, to our patients and our clients, it's up to them to be able to say, you know, it's not worth it to me. I don't care if I'm bloated all the time, or I don't mind injecting myself with this thing, because I'm not going to change my food around that seems too much. Or, you know, I don't have Maybe the ability to afford, or I don't have access to, which we talk a lot about, you know, health disparities and, and that sort of thing, too. And so, in that, uh, I, that leads me into my question to you about are you currently working with people who suffer from what you suffered from, or do you see yourself working with a typical or ideal client or patient, you know, in, in now or in the near future?
1: Yeah, no, I absolutely um, am working with folks with autoimmune diseases and would also be loving to work with with more folks with autoimmune diseases. Um, that is definitely my kind of little passion niche mm-hmm. uh, for sure. And then I'll also just mention, you know, something that I like to work with on my clients is kind of the idea that uh, healing or recovery is not linear ever. Yes. Right. And, you know, I almost wish I could draw like a graph of my healing because it would just be some like cosine curve or something like that. There's a lot of, you know, periods of great healing and then periods of uh, regression. Um, But the regressions are almost always smaller and smaller and smaller.
0: As time goes on, you start learning a little bit more about what triggers do occur or what you know what triggers the symptoms to occur um i want to go back for a sec too because some of the things that i find somewhat controversial sometimes in these discussions as you mentioned and for myself too just as a side note uh many years ago I was dealing with gastroenteritis. I was having just a a lot of stress as well, but also I think food and I was also a smoker at one point. And so Mm -hmm. I think a combination of all those things just threw my gut into like out of whack. And so I did a complete elimination of a lot of different things, caffeine, sugar, nicotine, et cetera, et cetera. And when we talk about our profession and the research that supports or, uh, or maybe shows us certain things that could be somewhat controversial, like discussions with added sugar, processed foods, gluten, dairy. You know, there's a real fine line sometimes there about who, like what we're crossing over into. Like some people swear that cutting all those things out really create such a night and day approach of to, of remedying them, why other people say there's no found research on that, but it just, to me, it always feels like whenever people are suffering through something, even if they are not diagnosed with a dairy intolerance or an allergy or celiac disease, et cetera, it feels sometimes like there are certain quote unquote culprits in the food supply system that do tend to trigger anecdotally, at least anyway. Um, and again, I don't know what you might've come across with that or how you also, if there's, you know, you mentioned to kind of cutting back or if you know you eat some things with a lot of added sugar in that you have some flare-ups but can you speak on that at all and again realizing you know this isn't the end all be all discussion there are definitely people who are pro this and anti that but i just it fascinates me especially when it comes to skin and gut conditions that sometimes the first things to go to kind of heal are those things i just mentioned the gluten the dairy the sugar
1: Right. Yeah, I know. I very much agree with you. And it's a it's a funny landscape. I mean, in the autoimmune world, we have um, this diet called the autoimmune protocol where they recommend cutting out a whole list of stuff. Like you mentioned, it's like caffeine and sugar and no nightshade vegetables and, you know, no alcohol and no grains. And I, you know, there's there's a whole laundry list of stuff. So I hear all the time from folks that, you know, if they're actually able to endure this extremely limited diet, that they often see results. But then they can't maintain Mm -hmm. this very, very strict limiting diet that, you know, basically makes you anti-social. They go back to eating the way that they were eating, um, hopefully, honestly, and then they get the flare-up again. Um, That's honestly best-case scenario. Worst-case scenario is that somebody tries an extremely restrictive elimination diet, um, such as, you know, the autoimmune uh, protocol or, like, Whole30 or something like that. Worst-case scenario is they develop an eating disorder, As a result. So working with a population that I love working with autoimmune diseases, knowing and that there is research showing that if you have an autoimmune disease, you have an increased risk of eating disorder Mm -hmm. and vice versa too. knowing that that's the case. I do not recommend uh, elimination diets to any of my clients. Um, and instead it's sort of just shooting in the dark, you know, so I'll talk to my clients and ask them, you know, are there any foods you suspect? What foods do you eat the most of? So, you know, dairy is like you said, a very, very common one. So if we suspect dairy, I'll tell my client, leave all of the other foods in place. You know, maybe we'll make, um, uh, you know, a goal based on like dessert or, you know, try to make their dessert a little, you know, healthier or something like that. We might try to clean up their diet, but the only food they're actually eliminating in this example would be dairy. And we do that for like a month and keep track of their symptoms. Often I'll ask them, you know, on a scale of one to 10, how severe is your symptom? Mm -hmm. And then later we can ask again, scale from one to 10, how severe is your symptom now to get a better idea of if we're making progress or not? Um, And then so dairy, like you said, is a big trigger I noticed for autoimmune disease. Gluten is high up there and nightshade vegetables, potato, tomato, eggplant, um, peppers. Those seem to be another big trigger for people with autoimmune diseases. But again, I would recommend only eliminating one at a time. And if you're unsure, reintroduce it. And if your symptoms don't really change, then it's probably not that food that's upsetting you. But as far as, you know, as far as I've come to understand, there's no, you know, allergy testing doesn't clue us into this. Other types of, you know, food and immune testing doesn't clue us into this. Really, the best thing we can do is just play with ourselves. And if we eliminate the food and it helps, awesome. If it doesn't, move on to the next one. Yeah. And I think that's
0: a really great message in the sense of the disordered eating potentially happening where we become so restrictive, we're so afraid. And you and I use those words in my tagline and yourself as well with developing and maintaining certain healthy relationships with food. If you're constantly afraid to eat something, which I get, if you are uncomfortable, if you are having flare ups, if you're feeling like I can't go out, because I come home and I'm sick to my stomach, or I can't take the way that my skin looks or how I feel, etc. I totally get it. And that's super unfortunate, because then you're right, it does end up denying people the ability to have to socialize. And of course, you know, we can work around that in the way of well, you know, prepare yourself ahead of time know what you're, you know, just like anything, if you have an allergy, or if you uh, maintain a certain Food preference as far as vegetarian, vet, vegan foods, um, then you would eat beforehand perhaps or bring your own food with you someplace. But there is, um, there's something about being too restrictive and being afraid of everything and not really perhaps allowing yourself that flexibility. And then denying yourself these huge amounts of food groups, which I'm glad that you're saying that too, Kaylee, in that you know, you're know, you okay to entertain some of that elimination protocol, but on a very small scale, not entire food groups at once, not denying people of grains just because you know, of what we hear sometimes about anti-nutrients and all of these um, kind of catchphrases that come up in a lot of the other channels, especially with social media, I think too. And you might agree with that also, like a lot of these protocols mm-hmm. that people tend to find For themselves, whether they are credentialed or not, in whatever it is that worked for them. Again, you know, being careful and mindful of how we relay that information or support that protocol when we're working with our own patients and clients. Um, So I like that you're being sensitive to it, but you're also being like, well, let's not be too restrictive now because we don't want you to end up with an eating disorder.
1: Absolutely. And that brings up some other, um, some other things I wrote about in my book, for example, um, you know, there's definitely some folks in the autoimmune community who speak really highly of paleo. Mm-hmm. So my, you know, question, just my question is, you know, is it the paleo that's helping them or are they maybe gluten sensitive? Right. You know, because you can't be paleo and eat gluten Right. You know, it just it doesn't work. Um, so which is it? You know, there are a lot of people that say, oh, I went vegan and that really helped my autoimmune disease. Okay. Is it the vegan diet or are you just now eating more fruits and vegetables? Exactly. Exactly. You know so sometimes we bring a gun to a knife fight. It's <laughs> a great way to put it. <laughs>
0: That is a great way to put it. And especially right especially in the case like you said when people are telling you their side of things it's well well yeah duh you started paying attention to what you're eating and you maybe did start eliminating some things that were triggering you or were a little bit more highly processed or you started focusing on yeah. including things that were missing from your diet uh, such as you know as we love our our um, antioxidants and our very brightly colored things especially in your, you have one of the best handles ever, your eat your veggies handle. I love that. (laughs) And so we are, we're proponents of the the leafy greens and all the beautifully colored and flavorful, you know, phytonutrients that we find in all of these things. Shifting gears, kind of, do you mind sharing with us a little bit about what a current day in the life of you is? You are still in private practice or how are you working? Well, okay. I should also, you know, say as in uh, the case of the dozen or so episodes that came before you in this, this interview, we are in a pandemic. Okay. We're still probably going to be in one by the time this airs. Uh, so can you tell us a little bit about if anything shifted or what you are doing right now or what you were doing before this leading up to it, your, you know, your normal clientele, et cetera.
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so currently I have partnered with a cardiologist, um, in, uh, Crown Heights, Dr. Muhammad Dogar, And so we work together out of the same office, um, seeing patients together um, and, you know, it's kind of referring to each other as, uh, you know, as is indicated or necessary. Mm. Um, So that's been a really wonderful partnership. And I'm so thankful to, you know, be working with a doctor who understands the role of food and nutrition and also understands that it's not their expertise and it's not their job or their role to do that type of education. Um, So I'm really appreciative of that and the value
0: of the dietitian, because it's sometimes so rare that you'll find people who even refer their patients to us. Yeah. That's so fantastic.
1: Exactly. Um, So at the moment, we are seeing patients in the office, um, but, you know, I would say that could kind of change at any time. I Mm -hmm. think we're both prepared to shut things down uh, if and when coronavirus gets more serious again. Um, And then as long as, you know, insurance companies are reimbursing for it, I have also been taking virtual patients, which I really love. Um, and I'm thinking of actually expanding my practice to Colorado uh, where I'm from uh, because they allow, um, they have a telehealth parity law. So yes. before coronavirus, they allowed uh, telehealth appointments to be reimbursed, um, which New York does not have, unfortunately. That is true. Um, and, that's, and that's a
0: good sign. Yes. If you don't mind me interrupting for anyone listening to this, like just be conscientious of the fact that not all of us are able to or allow to do these virtual consultations. And so if you're paying out of public, you're paying top dollar, but if we can try to get in on the insurances and to allow for some of these, especially when it comes to like preventative counseling sessions and, or helping you manage a condition at home where you might not be able to come to the office, whether it's in a pandemic or otherwise, um, what a wonderful world that would be, but it is state by state. And that's an issue that we tend to have.
1: (sighs) It's a big (laughs) issue, unfortunately, (sighs) unfortunately.
0: And go ahead. So continue. What else goes on behind the scenes there in your world?
1: Yeah, so um at the at this moment in time, um I've been working, you know, with a cardiologist in the same office, so we're there Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Um and then the other days of the week I'm, you know, maybe taking telehealth appointments or or working on my book, um or you know, working on things like like marketing. Yeah. Um so that's kind of a a day in the life a day so to in the
0: life. And for you personally, yeah. are there things so you mentioned obviously, you know, you love to eat, you love to cook or you or at least you've come yeah. to love to cook at this point and you love being outdoors yes. or outdoorsy? Are there things yeah. that I I call like non-negotiables. Do you have some sort of set daily routine that will always be in in place for you, no matter how busy you are, or at least you try to get to and manage those, what I like to call those four pillars of health that, you know, these different kinds of risk factors that potentially could fall down and, and ruin, (laughs) ruin our health if we let them.
1: Yeah, it's a really good question. Um, Something that is almost non-negotiable for me is, you know, around eight hours of sleep. I I don't really function otherwise. Um, So I'm lucky right now that I can make that more of a reality. Um, And then lately, I've been really trying... um, either when I wake up and or before I go to bed, just trying to sneak in, if I can sneak in just a little bit of stretching or maybe like a little bit of yoga poses um, or maybe some meditation, some, um, some breath work, that either it starts my day right when I do it in the morning and I just yeah have like a much more like kind of flowing day and then uh if I do especially like breath work at night even just for like one minute before Mm -hmm. I go to bed my sleep quality improves by like 30 percent or something ridiculous I just sleep so much better. Um, so maybe sleep is at the core of my uh, self-care, self-care routine. Another thing, too, that I have to do, um, since I've recently discovered how much air pollution mm-hmm. is hard on my body, is hard on my um, immune system, triggers my autoimmune disease, um, every night I uh, turn on a HEPA air filter, and I sleep with that every night. Um, and that really helps uh, keep my psoriasis um, away, truly. Um, I can tell when I've forgotten to use it because I start to flare up again. Yeah. Um, and then maybe not something that I do every day, but at least a few times a week, I try to bike to work and I, I just love it. I just love like the wind in my hair and like the wheels flying under me and, you know, kind of racing like the red lights and, <laughs> and things like that. I love it. Uh, so those are some tenets of of self care for me. I,
0: I love the gift that keeps on giving. It's like it's exhilarating, it's yes. stress relieving. It it gets you probably, like you said, a better quality of sleep as well if you are being somewhat yes. active and doing these different things for you. And then also just you know physical activity in general. What a lovely thing to treat your body to as well. That's so great. Absolutely. You really do. Absolutely. You know, you really. I think you really do live by example and lead by example. Because, you know, with a lot of us who are in this profession, we do sometimes have to deal with our own conditions, our own health concerns, or have had people in our families who we've watched go through and suffer through things. And I really think that makes us um, a little bit more compassionate to the people with whom we work, and also curious, as well as to delving deeper and having that Uh, that connection with, with, again, with our patients and clients of being like, you know, we've been there and I do this too, and I'm a human and I also suffer from not great this, or I try my best to, you know, maintain this and, uh, and hopefully that, um, resonates with whoever that we're working. So that's wonderful that you're doing that for yourself as well. Uh,
1: Absolutely. I want to ask
0: you a couple of questions as we're wrapping up. So the first one is oh. what does the future you look like in the sense of, you know, you wrote this book. This is quite a big deal. You've, you've been, I think you've been involved in, um, some, some sort of media, right? Like you, you like blogging or writing in that way, but is that the first time you've ever written something kind of like hardcore like that?
1: Yeah, you know, it actually is. And it's funny. I originally was like, Oh, let me just like write a free ebook. Like, let me just get all my ideas down about psoriasis. And then it it just kept coming. Like I just kept writing. And it was just more and more. And the more I delved into the research. And by the way, my book is evidence based. Um, As far as I know, it's the only evidence based psoriasis uh, book out there. The other ones are kind of more like um, case studies um although mine has that element as well but um anyway yeah so it just kept coming and the more I, I researched it the more I was just like oh my god oh my god oh my god like this and this and this and this um so yeah I'm right now I'm deep in like editing mode working with my editor and you know making sure that I put out you know the best book that I reasonably can um so I'm not quite sure exactly when I'll be publishing yet but I'm so excited and you know I just I really just hope that I can help other people at least reduce our psoriasis. My dream is to help a lot of other people put their psoriasis in remission. Um, and I want to do so in like a very affordable way. And so the book is written to be like very, very readable. Like you don't have to read every single word to know what's going on. Like, I, you know, highlight sections and bold things and, you know, try to make it just super navigable so you could just flip through it and know real quick what I'm suggesting. And then if later you're like, what was that thing? Let me learn more about it. You can go back to that section and read more. Right. But I want it to be just like, you know, super, super handy, easy to use. And you don't have to like sit down for hours and actually read it if you don't want to. It's not
0: textbook heavy. It's just it's more right, like no. okay, very light, light, but also usable and user friendly. Um, and then the, fu- the yeah. future you in addition to that, then do you see yourself expanding oh. into some sort of specialty in that in that way or, you know, growing your
1: business at some point? Yes. I forgot the second half of your question. Uh, yes, the, absolutely. So yeah, my big dream right now is to get my book published. And then, um, you know, especially at this moment in time, I'm accepting more uh, autoimmune clients as well. So that's kind of my, you know, medium term goal. And then uh, kind of like you alluded to, you know, I definitely would like to grow a bigger web presence and, and do more blogging and kind of spread the word, so to speak. Um, and yeah, ideally, I would love to, you um, You know, see this kind of method work for a lot more people and and spread the word and get a lot more folks in better places with their skin, with their bodies, with their immune systems um, and healing better. So, yes, I'd love to, you know, expand as far as um, I'll say as far as I should. You know, if I'm if people don't benefit as much from this work as I imagine they will, then, you know, so be it. But I really just don't think that's the case. I have uh, the research to back it up. So I'm feeling quite confident about the things I'm writing. Um, But yes, absolutely, the goal is to... To expand and, and share the knowledge. Yeah, and
0: I think that brings me to the discussion about specializing in in healthcare in general. I mean, you know, you had mentioned to before about working with the cardiologist and knowing that they have their own scope of practice and they can't necessarily, even though they might know a little bit about nutrition and the role it plays in helping manage disease and or preventing you know disease in that way, um, they only have a small amount of education. And I always joke like I promise not to do heart surgery on you if you promise not to speak to uh, to my patients about food. And so let me take that. (laughs) And so as dietitians, you know, we do kind of look at ourselves globally and somewhat generally as the experts in food and nutrition. But I think it's, it's really helpful when we can fine tune that because for, for every person who, is going to a doctor and is not being treated in a more personalized or individualized way. I hope that at some point, if not already, we start expanding in our profession to be specialized in all these little niche fields because people need us. And when we look at the ratio, medical doctors, I think when last I looked this up, it was about a million medical doctors in the United States. And there was about a hundred thousand dietitians in the United States. And so if only we were in every single office, or if only we had enough to go around where we can specialize in whatever it is, whether it's eating disorders or skin conditions or gut health or pediatrics or renal support, whatever it is that I think I don't, I should say, the opposite in the sense of I don't think I was given that encouragement in my years in academic stuff. So I don't think, you know, they really kind of helped us fine tune that. And so it's really only maybe when you put your feet on the ground and you start working in those communities and those circles or people find you because of your own message, your own mission, and your own experience that we start learning a little bit more about ourselves as healthcare providers and what what we can bring to the table and how lovely that is for us to do. Would you agree with that, too, as far as, like, in school? It was more general approaches, or did you get some guidance in specializing?
1: No, I completely agree with you. It was, uh, yeah, just, yeah, just kind of general nutrition. I never, um, you know, I, yeah, I was never taught to specialize. I fell into it, so to speak. Right. Um, Um, But like you said, I think there's so much power for dietitians and specializing. And we are sort of in this really funny place, Um, like food and nutrition as a field of study is so young, so infantile, like we hardly know anything really about uh, about food and nutrition, and how it affects our body, and you know the ways that food has changed in the last you know couple hundred years, um, we don 't even really understand the impacts of all of that and um, you know and then how genetics plays into it there 's so much yet to be unearthed in our field. Right. Um, So that's one huge barrier. Another big barrier is, you know, most people don't know what a dietitian is or how we're different from a nutritionist. And there's so few of us, uh, you know, yeah, we don't really get much respect in the Western community. I um, am always like kind of kicking myself whenever I hear uh, them talk about like nutrition and medical schools. Yes. And they're like, you know, doctors only receive like, you know, a few hours of training on nutrition, blah, blah, medical school. I'm like, Listen, just explain to them how important we are. Right. Like, just explain to them what we can do. They don't really need to know how to do it. If they want to know how to do it, they should become a dietitian. Yeah. And But what you really need to teach them is to refer mm-hmm. to us. Yeah. That's what you need to teach them. So it gets you a little, you know, infuriated when they're like, we're teaching doctors how to cook. Beautiful. Right. Now teach them how to refer to, uh, to the to the experts right. in food and nutrition, right. which is not doctors, you know, for the most part, right. because it does um, it becomes like a so side and- a
0: side opportunity for them, but it's not their main opportunity for them to to deal with patients and clients. So they can give a little bit of a taste. Thank you so much for covering that, and then please refer out because we're here to take it from that point forward.
1: Absolutely. And if insurance covers 15 minutes of you with a doctor, mm-hmm. you know, uh, for maybe twice a year, how much can you really cover insurance covers, you know, the, like the worst insurance plans mostly cover at least three hours, right. uh, if not six hours of uh, nutrition education from a dietitian per year, right. you know, so that's kind of the bare minimum of time that is needed. Yeah um for us to really help somebody and even that i think is a gross uh, underestimation of the time that we really need to to work with people um but yeah kind of treating nutrition as this like side little you know cherry on top or something like that really does a huge disservice to the power yeah. of food and nutrition yeah. uh to heal
0: right and then i and then on the other hand there's also it's such a universal topic that everybody thinks they know what they're talking about and it's like eh, sometimes not yeah. so much um so kaylee tell me too uh, did we cover everything? Was there anything else that you think you want to add or share with the listeners resources or anything else? Like, you know, what nuggets of wisdom that you want to set out? Or is there anything that you feel like we, we covered, we didn't cover.
1: Let's see. Um, let me peek at my notes really <laughs> quickly. Um, you know, me too. I'm looking see. at your notes
0: as well. i like, I think we got, I think we got everything, <laughs> but who knows if something came up in, in the discussion?
1: I, um, I'll, I'll just one last kind of thing on my mind. It seems like relevant to mention. Um, so we spoke about like, me kind of going through anorexia yeah. as a teenager and then switching to vegetarianism. Um, so from the research that i am done, that seems to be like a quite common thing for people to do when they're trying to heal from an eating disorder mm-hmm. is pick up something like a vegetarian diet um, sort of like offers structure, but still restrictions. Right which I think is really comfortable to people, uh, you know, leaving disordered eating. Um, and so I'll just mention, you know, I was vegetarian for, for many years, um, no longer, though. And then when I was in college, I kind of delved more into orthorexia, which is an obsession right. with healthy eating. Um, and kind of all the things I was learning in school about food and nutrition, I felt like food had to be, you know, 100% healthy to eat it. Um, and that was another thing. Eventually, I just had to kind of back out of and be like, whoa, right. this is not healthy. This is not safe. This is not serving me, you know, um, and this is just giving me more problems than it's solving. Um, so I just kind of wanted to mention, you know, there's an even more like convoluted backstory to my disordered eating history. Um, and I think a lot of that, you know, really contributed to my, the development of psoriasis. Mm-hmm. Um, But, you know, that said, I do feel like my relationship with food is quite healed now, um, which has been, you know, a really wonderful release, I would say. And it's nice to have, um, you know, as they say, in the intuitive eating world to have like kind of food freedom. Right. uh, It's very nice. You
0: can definitely find there's there's light at the end of the tunnel there and you'll be able to hopefully feel comfort again at some point.
1: Absolutely. And there's still some foods if I eat it, I know that I might um, get a psoriasis flare up or be in a little bit of pain. But especially now that I'm like, you know, largely in remission, Mm -hmm. I can kind of choose to be in pain. (laughs) And I'll be like, oh, I really want to eat that slice of cake because it's my grandma's birthday Mm -hmm. or whatever. Mm -hmm. And I I have the choice. Um, And that's huge. A lot of people I think with autoimmune diseases feel that it's outside of their control outside of their hands. And that's what's so frustrating and infuriating about it. Um, So it's really been beautiful to find this place where I know which foods irritate me. And as long as I don't eat too much of them, then my health is maintained. But yeah, if I want to eat a slice of uh, cake, or you know, go get some, um, my one of my all time favorites is like cheese puffs. Oh man, (laughs) (laughs) if I want to like enjoy those things occasionally, I totally can and um and not feel guilty about it and also not get too sick from it, mm-hmm. which is really nice. Mm-hmm, exactly. So yeah, I'm, I, and that that's a,
0: that's I'm speaking to, to like knowing who you are. That I mean, on a lighter note, me being lactose intolerant, that's what keeps me from being vegan mm-hmm. ever because I love cheese so much. But I definitely mm-hmm. have tummy <laughs> trouble when I'm eating certain things like ice cream and cheesecake. Uh, not so much with the harder right? cheeses or yogurts, but yeah, I just I'm like whatever. Ah, okay. I'm not going to deny myself of ice cream. I'm sorry. Um, Um, absolutely where can people find you publicly you are on social media you have a public profile there correct and a website as well absolutely
1: yes absolutely so my handle is eat your veggies y-e-r so it's instagram that's eat e-a-t underscore y-e-r underscore veggies Um, and then my website is pretty much the same eatyourveggies.com. Um, and again, your is why. Yeah. Yeah, And I'll put
0: this in the, um, in the episode notes as well. I'll have links that go on there as well. And so finally, my little, uh, pun intended last final question, what is on your plate today, both as in what are you doing after we get off of this recording and what will you be eating? And maybe cheese puffs make a a presence or not. (laughs) (laughs)
1: I hope they do. Um, (laughs) I have um, some leftover salmon that's been sitting in like a teriyaki marinade Mm. for a few days now that needs to be cooked. And I also have some cauliflower that I ended up preparing, like I ended up chopping into bite-sized pieces earlier this week, but didn't cook yet. So I kind of have these things just sort of ready to throw on the stove. Um, And then I want to include some sort of grain or starch. I just haven't quite decided what yet although I'm yeah I'm staring at a potato over here so maybe I'll throw in some potatoes with it right yeah exactly and uh yeah maybe I'll get some cheese (laughs) buffs (laughs) out
0: and are you done for the day as far as work is concerned or anything personal that you'll be doing like riding or anything like that or you're you're done for the day yeah
1: I'm pretty much done yeah I'm gonna cook some food and uh
0: good Call it a day. Enjoy your eight hours of sleep. I'm very jealous because sometimes I don't hit that <sighs> much, but I'm trying. I'm trying to get there. So I'm very, I'm very That's all you can that's do. That's all you can do. And I'm very happy that you have kind of secured that in your, in your non-negotiables. I'm very happy about that. Um, Miss Kaylee Clay, it has been a true pleasure. This is a long time coming. I'm so glad to have spent so much time chatting with you and really learning about all of this and also with so much time that has passed with our friendship as well that I'm really so proud of you and these next steps that you're taking with the book publishing and whatever is to come in the future, I'm sure you will nail it. So congratulations on all these great things, my dear.
1: Thank you so much, Gina. I really, really appreciate that. It was kind of you. I appreciate it.
0: Thank you so much for joining me this week on the Dish with Dina podcast. I am Dina D'Alessandro, registered dietitian, nutritionist, founder, and chief executive life changer at Dish with Dina. And I'm also your host. If you like what you heard, I would be so grateful if you could subscribe to this podcast, leave a review, and share this with others who you think might benefit from what we have to offer on these episodes. You can also join my mailing list at dishwithdina.com or email me at info at with questions, comments, feedback, and if you'd like to be a guest on a future episode because everybody eats and we all have a story to share. I hope you tune back in next week when we dish again.